0: Follow along with us in the book of Jeremiah. We started this last week, and it's a large book. Jeremiah, interestingly enough, not the longest book by chapter in the Bible, but it's the longest book by word count. So it's a very, uh, you know, long read. It's a, it's a heavy read as Jeremiah is on the scene speaking to the people in the southern kingdom of Israel, the, known as Judah, where Jerusalem is, and of course, as you know, God has called Jeremiah at this young age. Right there in chapter one, we're told of how God called Jeremiah when he was even, not even in the womb, right? I mean, you wanna talk about when does life start? Well, God knew about Jeremiah before he was even conceived as a child, right? So uh, there's God calling Jeremiah, letting him know that he's got a role for him, a specific role, an important role, and that was to be that messenger of God to go and speak that word of warning to the people in Judah that just as they've seen the Northern Kingdom of Israel fall to the Assyrians and have become captives there back in 722 BC, well, so too now God's raising up another instrument of judgment in the Babylonians that are soon gonna be coming against Judah and the Southern Kingdom and lead them away if the people don't repent and turn back to the Lord. Now, what's awesome is that Jeremiah ministers. Does anybody remember how long he ministers for? 40 years. Where'd that come from? Pete, come on now. Give the other people a break, will you? Pete was like a pastor for 40 years, so of course he's going to be the guy that gets that. But good answer. Yeah, exactly. He's only 35, so do the math. All right. He was called before he was conceived, so we're adding those years. so 40 years, think about that. 40 years, Jeremiah is on the scene ministering to the people. Isn't that great? And what that tells us is that God's desiring people to come to that place of repentance so that they might find life in him, that they might be redeemed, restored, that they might, that they might be spared from this judgment. That's what God desires for each and every one of us. Second Peter tells us in chapter 3 that he, he wishes that none would perish. He desires that everybody comes to know Jesus as their Savior. And so here's Jeremiah on the scene for 40 years. But what's amazing is that over those 40 years, nobody responds to the message. Nobody repents. There's no revival that goes on. There's there's no change of heart in the people. And so here we're seeing now this judgment moving ever so close now. Now, We ended off last week in chapter 29. Jump over to chapter 29. Let me put the the outline that we've kind of been following, though we kind of stopped in between one of those sections here. Chapter 1 is Jeremiah's message. message. Um, Sorry, Jeremiah's mission in chapter 1. He's called to the Lord. Chapters 2 to 33 deal with that message that's being given to Judah. And then we see this ministry, chapters 34 to 45, Before and after the siege of Jerusalem. So what's going on there? Then of course again in chapter 46 to 51. It's really just Jeremiah giving this message once more. To all the surrounding nations of Judah. To the different nations there. And then we see in chapter 52. Just the review of the destruction and, and desecration of the city of Jerusalem. But in chapter 29. We left off last week there. Really looking at just this great promise of the Lord. Jeremiah 29 Verse 11, let's look at that again here. And here's what we read there. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Then in verse 12, it goes on to say, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I'll bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So understand that word right there, chapter 29, well-known verse 29, 11. Well, that would have been huge, important, good news for those that would be sitting in captivity in Babylon to reflect back on this word from Jeremiah, to think, oh Lord, you mean you're not done with us? You mean you haven't given up on us? You mean your thoughts towards us are not evil, but they're to give us a, a future and a hope? And that would be accomplished 70 years after they were taken into captivity when God would indeed fulfill this promise and bring them back to the land but it's gonna have its ultimate fulfillment. Understand, oftentimes there's kind of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There's a dual fulfillment, oftentimes a prophecy, where there's an immediate fulfillment of that, but then there's gonna be a later fulfillment of that too. And this is also gonna be referring to when the Lord's gonna regather his people during the millennium, and he's gonna bring them back into their land where they will be, once again, scattered in large part, though there's many coming back to the land of Israel now, that's awesome, but he's gonna, they're gonna be scattered again during the tribulation, and he'll be regathering them once more in the millennium. And you see, all of this stuff was being done, this judgment come down upon them, why was it being done? It was being done because of their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience, they didn't uphold the law. But then notice what we read as we continue on here in chapter 30. In chapter 30, verse 10, Notice what we're going to see happening here. Chapter 30, verse 10. Therefore, do not fear. O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I'm with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I've scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. See, again, though the present picture may look very bleak, Jeremiah, as he's being told by the Lord, is saying, don't be dismayed. Why? Because God knows the plans that he has for them. Plans of peace and not of evil to give them a future and a hope. God declares again that he's going to save them. Do you see that there? In, in, right there in verse 10. Behold, I will save you from afar, from wherever you've been taken to. I'm going to draw you back in. God declares he's going to save them from wherever they are. Nobody is, is out of reach from the Lord saving them. Whoever you've been praying for, for their salvation. No matter where they've traveled to spiritually, no matter where they've gone, they're never too far out of reach from the Lord coming and doing a work in their lives. And so here with the people of Israel, God's gonna bring them back into the land where they're gonna experience rest and quiet, it says here, where he's gonna make an end of all the nations, but not of Israel. Israel, yeah, they're gonna be corrected. They're gonna go through a a time of chasing they're not going to be completely off the hook they're not being spared just because they're Israel. it's not favoritism toward israel as some might think because here's the thing they're going to be punished but they're going to respond to that correction unlike the other nations that's the difference here the next few verses speak more about their need for punishment look at verse 12 of chapter 30 Verse 12 says this, For thus says the Lord, Your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Verse 15, Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. I've done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder, and all who prey upon you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. Now, check that out. It says there in verse 12 that your affliction, their, Israel's affliction, is incurable. So what are they to do? What hope can they possibly have? It's incurable in and of themselves. That's the deal. It's a sin issue. It's severe, and they're unable to bring healing themselves. That's what people need to realize even today, that we are struck with an incurable disease, incurable in and of ourselves, And it's the same plague that hits us as it hit Israel. It's sin, plain and simple. We're struck with that terminal disease. Nothing we can grasp onto can help until we turn to Jesus. It says there that that there's no one to plead your cause in verse 13. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. Everything that they had once put their trust in, their hope in, whatever they kind of glommed onto to try to seek some kind of comfort or help, didn't work because they were seeking the wrong things. It's only found in the Lord Jesus. Again, that's the only cure that we have. The only cure we need for our sin is found in Christ alone and through the work that, that he has accomplished for us on the cross. See, we all have to see ourselves with that terminal disease known as sin. The only cure is through Jesus. It removes any kind of human merit, or pride in thinking that we can save ourselves. We recognize this was something that I couldn't take care of, only Jesus can. Just as that hymn, Rock of Ages, I love that hymn, Rock of Ages, and it declares this, not, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone Goes on to say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the only hope that we have. But it's the only, only hope that we need. Because Jesus will do it when we come to him. He saves us, forgives us. And notice that, that line, that song, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy laws commands you see israel was put under that law of the lord and they were messing up royally right i mean they didn't even get close to fulfilling even part of it but here's the great thing there's coming a day when god's gonna usher in a new covenant they were under the old covenant the law Of Moses, But there's coming a day when he's going to bring in a new covenant. It's it's beyond the promise of a return from captivity. God had an even greater work in mind where he would roll out this new covenant for them. You see, if God were just to bring restoration and a regathering of the people into Israel, into their land, it would be a moot point if their hearts were not willing to follow, or even if their hearts were able to follow the Lord in obedience. See, the law simply showed God's standard, but it also revealed humanity's inability to fulfill it. Anybody today that tries to live by the law and think that I'm going to be a good person by my own righteousness are going to quickly realize that they're going to fail in it, that we can't do it, we can't attain it. But God is going to come and do a completely new work, and it's going to be an internal work. Look at chapter 31. This is the great passage of Jeremiah here, the new covenant that's being spoken of here. Chapter 31, go, go down to verse 33. Well, just let me just hit that first line of verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. Not according, I'm just gonna read it because it's so good. Verse 32, are y'all with me? Yeah. Chapter 31, and now in verse 32. Everybody say "I" when you're there. Okay, the rest of you didn't say I. I am just going to keep going. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Amen, right? Isn't that good stuff right there? And notice, first of all, the emphasis that we see here on behalf of God, because it says, this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law in their, in their minds. I will be their God. I will forgive their iniquity. Their sin I will remember no more. See, this isn't a covenant where it's like, if you do this or if you do that, that's how the old covenant was. If you do this, if you do that, it was do, do, do. And if you didn't do it, then you were in do, do, right? I mean, that's kind of how to realize that. It just wasn't gonna be good. But it was all about what you needed to do. But God comes in the new covenant and says, this is the work I'm gonna do. I will accomplish this. I'm gonna do that. See, the old covenant, it it gave us rules, but it gave us no power to carry them out. It said, obey to live. But the new covenant says, you live now to obey. I'm gonna put that in your heart to do that. And it doesn't just leave us to fend for ourselves. We've been given the Holy Spirit now to give us the power to live that life for Jesus and in Jesus. So this new covenant is gonna be a work that God will do. Before, he wrote the covenant on stone tablets, but now it says he's gonna write those things on our hearts. The stone tablet was a good picture, wasn't it, of man's heart. It was hard. It was stubborn. It it, it couldn't receive these things in a way that it was able to carry them out. In fact, that's what, what, what God said in Ezekiel regarding Israel. He says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. That's going to become an internal thing now. The new covenant brings us transformation internally rather than a regulation of the law externally. That's the difference here. The old covenant tried to, con- try to control your conduct, but the new covenant comes in and it promises to change your character. No longer is you trying to control your conduct, it comes in and changes your character now. It goes beyond the sheet music of the law which can find you to the notes on the page. The new song would be intuitive. It's played by ear. It's deep within the fiber of your being now. And why is all this possible? Well, that's where it really gets good because God says there at the end of verse 34, their sin I will remember no more. See, under the old covenant, you can never deal with your sins completely. Yeah, there was, there was the sacrificial system. There was an atonement made, but that just covered your sin. You never could remove it. But Jesus says, now under the new covenant, through the work of Jesus, your sin is gonna be taken away, removed, forgiven, and no longer held against you. That's the difference now between law and grace. This is the new covenant that we have under Jesus Christ that Israel is going to realize at a a later date when God brings them all back into the land during the millennium, when they now begin to walk in these things, when God is gonna do that change of heart in them, replace that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And these things are going to be on their mind and on their heart. It's going to be carried out because God's going to do that work internally in them. Going to be glorious. What a great future we have to look forward to. It's going to be so cool. Well, in chapter 32, we skip ahead a bit now chronologically through the book of Jeremiah. Because in chapter 32, we're at this place now, um, just kind of the year before, Jerusalem is going to be sacked. It's 587 BC. Jerusalem is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. Jeremiah is in prison. Yet he's told by the Lord that his cousin Hanamel is going to come and sell a piece of his land. And the Lord tells Jeremiah to buy it. Buy this land. See, it's the the worst possible time for a real estate transaction because here they see Babylon besieging the city. They're kind of trapped within the city. They're, They're like, It's just a matter of time before we're done for. They're gonna take over the land. This is the worst possible time to be doing any kind of real estate transaction. Yet God says, Jeremiah wants you to buy a piece of land. Why? Because God's revealing to Jeremiah and really a picture for all Israel that he's not done with Israel. That this isn't the last they're gonna see the land, that God's gonna make sure that he's gonna fulfill the promises he's made to them and bring them back into the land. This being taken away in captivity is not going to be a permanent thing. Look at chapter 32, verse 16. 32, verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for you. As Jeremiah realizes what God is doing with this purchase of land and what he's going to accomplish in it. And then jump down to verse 26 of chapter 32. Verse 26, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God just kind of repeats it. Let's Jeremiah know. Hey, listen, no need to doubt me. No need to worry through all this because I'm at work and I'm going to carry out my word and my promises. There's nothing too hard for me. Isn't that good to know? how we need to remind ourselves. Whatever situation you might be up against, whatever you might have going on in your life, you have to remind yourself there is nothing too hard for God. No matter how dire or bleak or dark the situation you're in might look like, where you think, I don't even know what God can do in this. We have to remind ourselves, there's nothing too hard for you, God. I don't need a doubt, Lord. Help me to have that confidence and trust in you. Now, here again, we see the Lord fulfilling this new covenant with his people here in verse 36 of chapter 32 verse 36 says this now therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the city of which you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword by the famine and by the pestilence behold I will gather them out of all countries where I've driven them in my anger in my fury and in great wrath I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely they shall be my people And I will be their God. Then I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I'll put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. So even though the city is gonna be overtaken, God's plans and promises never will be thwarted. God will still do a future work Of restoration and that seems to point even to again the last days when God's going to bring his people Israel out of all countries it says in verse 37 and cause them to dwell safe it'll be at that time that they will experience again that that fullness of the new covenant that God has established it's at that time that they will experience being a people for God and God being their Lord they're going to have one heart meaning it'll be completely focused on serving the Lord and carrying out his word. Well, now we need to also remember that obedience doesn't always lead to just comfort and a smooth ride. Jerusalem, or sorry, Israel's gotten themselves into a lot of trouble for disobedience, but we have to remember too that obedience doesn't always lead to just a smooth ride where we're never challenged or go through any kind of harm because look at what we see next happening here because jeremiah has been nothing but obedient but here's the thing people don't want to listen to him look at chapter 38 let's jump over to chapter 38 verse 4 jeremiah's been sounding the alarm speaking the word of the lord but the people are not happy with it. They're not responding. They don't want to listen. Look at chapter 38, verse four. It says this, Therefore the princess said to the king, Please let this man be put to death. They're speaking to Jeremiah. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. So they're kind of getting angry at Jeremiah. And then the king allowed them to do whatever they wanted to him. So here's what they did. They took Jeremiah, lowered him into the dungeon of the king's son, which was in the court of prison. And this dungeon was this big pit that was kind of muddy at the bottom. When they lowered Jeremiah in, he sunk down into the the mire, into into the pit here. And that was probably the lowest place that Jeremiah had been. I mean, both literally... And emotionally, mentally, I mean, this was a tough time for him. He's in this pit. He's, he's sunk. He's stuck in the mud here. Like, this is not enjoyable for him. And I'm sure he's thinking, God, why? Have I not carried out everything you told me to do? And this is how you repay me? But even here, God continued to show his hand upon him because God showed favor to him and sent someone to be a help and to deliver him. Jeremiah was brought them before King Zedekiah. Again, and Zedekiah wanted Jeremiah to to let him know what was coming. Basically, Zedekiah's like, Jeremiah, tell me exactly here how things are going to unfold. And Jeremiah promised to speak truthfully if the king would not have him put in the pit again. Well, the king agreed. Look at chapter 38, verse 17. Chapter 38, verse 17, then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. So Jeremiah's letting them know, and this is what people were speaking about here when they say like he's weakening the hands of the men of war he's not concerned for them because jeremiah's word as was the word of the lord was submit to the babylonians and you won't be harmed but nobody wanted to do that they wanted to fight they wanted to try to do it their way it's not the way it is for us oftentimes when the easy way is simply to submit to the lord but we go no wait wait I think I have a better way of doing it. I think I got a different plan that is gonna probably be more profitable for me. And we fight and we end up making things worse. When we submit to the Lord, then we know it's gonna be a, a much more enjoyable ride as God continues to lead us through. Well, after all that went down, the the best that the king could do to ensure Jeremiah's safety was to have him placed under house arrest in the royal courtyard but he'd have his provisions taken care of so Jeremiah was safe there but this is where Jeremiah was now remember the whole city of Jerusalem is being laid siege by Babylon for two and a half years that was going on and now they finally break through Jeremiah's in the court uh, the royal courtyard under house arrest that's where he is when the Babylonians eventually broke through the city walls and destroyed the city in chapter 39 is Jeremiah's eyewitness of all that. Look at chapter 39, verse one. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Now, a number of events in Jeremiah can be cross-checked with dates in surviving Babylonian records and related accurately now to our modern calendar. This event in, in chapter 39, verse one, occurred on January 15th, 588 B.C. And then in verse two, we span the distance of two and a half years. Two and a half years that would have been brutal, difficult, hard. They were being just kind of, you know, weeded out. Food supply stopped. Water would oftentimes uh, be stopped. The people were just dying a slow death within the, the city limits. So that event, recorded in 39 verse two, is July 18th, 586 BC. That's when the Babylonians eventually broke through into Jerusalem and overtook the city. Look at verse eight of chapter 39. And the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. The Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon, the, the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, check this out. Here's the Babylonian king telling Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying to Jeremiah, take him and look after him and do him no harm. But do it to him just as he says to you, How good is that? So Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, sent Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Shashban, uh, all those guys, and all the kings of Babylon's chief officers. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. So in the midst of this destruction of the city, the burning that's going on, Jeremiah is remembered. God is is in control. And he's not just remembered, but he's showing great favor. Due to him just as he says to you. I mean, God's taking care of him. God's providing for him. It's, a, it's awesome. I mean, Jeremiah never had that kind of favor among his own people at Judah. And now he's being treated better by the enemy. Oh, because God is leading all of that and working all things out for the good. Don't you love accounts like that in God's word? We see that happen time and time again with Joseph. Well, chapter 40, verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, I'll let you get there, chapter 40. Hopefully you're right there. Chapter 40, verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he'd taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah who were carried away captive to Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced his doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. Now that's interesting. Because here's the enemy speaking this word of the Lord to the people of Judah and laying out very clearly why all that had happened. The captain of the guard, a Babylonian, Nebuchadnezzar in here, tells Jeremiah the reason Israel has been defeated and is now facing this doom is because they have sinned and disobeyed against God. That's a sad day when the enemies of the Lord are speaking truth into your life here and telling you what God has been trying to tell you. That's a very sad day when you have pagan people revealing this to you. It shows that, man, you have gone far from missing it and not getting it when the pagan people got it and understood. But it's true. You reap what you sow. Sow to the flesh, and you're gonna reap the fallout of that. If you refuse God, well, he refuses you. If you're not broken before the Lord, you're gonna be broken at the hands of men. That's precisely what the people of Israel, sadly, had to experience. Now, what we see happening in chapter 41 is there's this insurrection, this conspiracy that's growing against Gedalia. Gedalia's the one that Jeremiah was left in the care of. And they wanted to basically see Gedalia killed. This man, Ishmael, wanted to accomplish that. And so he eventually sabotages and kills Gedalia. And now he attempts to to take a remnant of people from Judah away captive into where the Ammonites are. Chapter 41, verse 10 talks about that. But then there's a man, Johanan, that he sees this, and he enlists a group to go up and and fight against Ishmael and stop him from doing that. Ishmael's defeated, and now Johanan prepares to take that group of people down into Egypt. Chapter 41, verse 17. So before they leave, they come and they consult Jeremiah. They want to seek a word of the Lord. And they say this in chapter 42, verse 5. Just look at that there, chapter 42, verse five. They said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you. So they say, inquire the Lord, what shall we do? And they're basically saying, whatever the Lord says, that we will do. And they conclude in verse six, or sorry, yeah, verse six is what we read. um, Or sorry, verse six. Let me read that. Whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now, sadly, as we kind of read along there, that we'll find out in that chapter the people had already kind of made up their minds. They were determined to go to Egypt. They were just sort of seeking the Lord's blessing for the decision that they'd already made. It was just kind of a, arbitrary petition that they were putting out there before the lord kind of in an attempt to have the lord confirm their decision i wonder how often we do that do we turn to the lord to seek his approval for what we're doing and seeking to do or are we seeking his counsel of what we should do it's important that we turn to him with an open heart and open ears and a willingness to follow in obedience, because as as they said, you know, in in verse six, whether it's pleasing or displeasing, we're gonna obey the voice of the Lord, that it may be well with us. That's the key right there. When we obey the Lord, it will be well with you. It's gonna ultimately be good. The Lord will will see you through and accomplish his purposes and and his will through your life. That comes and flows out of obedience. But too often, we're just saying, Lord, Bless this work that I've already decided to do. Bless this decision that I've already chose to do. That's what these people end up doing. Because Jeremiah tells them, don't go down to Egypt. It's not going to be well with you. Don't do it. But they went anyways. And as they went into Egypt, they went in direct disobedience to the word of God. And they continued to disobey the Lord. Even there. Tells us in chapter 44 that they were persisting in their defiance and continued in idolatry they were worshiping the queen of heaven and and yet God was still faithful because even in Egypt God was speaking through Jeremiah they they had inevitably taken Jeremiah with them many believed that that was by force that they grabbed Jeremiah and took him kind of maybe thinking that this guy's going to be good luck for us perhaps but the word of the Lord continued to come to them in Egypt because he desired their hearts to turn to him and had turn away from idolatry, but they continued on in those things. Well, chapter 44, verse 20. says this. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women, and all the people who had given him that answer, saying, the incense that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes, and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? And did it not come into his mind So the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse, and without an inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes, or in his testimonies. Therefore, this calamity has happened to you as at this day. And then he goes on to say in verse 27, Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Yet a small number who escaped the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know whose words will stand mine or theirs. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I'll punish you in this place that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. Thus says the Lord, behold I will give Pharaoh, Hophra, king of Egypt, into the land of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. So sadly, these people that went to Egypt did so because they thought they'd be the safest there. They thought they'd get away from the Babylonians, but now their lives are eventually going to be brought down there. They're going to be destroyed just as just as they thought they were escaping that but because they continued in disobedience that judgment is following them whereas interestingly those that submitted to the Babylonians guess what they're safe they may be dwelling in a distant land in Babylon but they're safe and they're going to be established there and there's going to be a remnant that's going to be brought back to the land they're going to be spared it's a lesson for us that we may not always be able to make sense of or understand the Lord's plans, but His plans are always favorable in the end. How we need to trust Him. So, in the last few chapters—chapters chapters forty-five or sorry, forty-six—on to uh, chapter fifty-one or all again, Jeremiah prophesying to the nations which surround, um, surround Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, nations like Egypt and Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, um, Elam, Babylon. These are all nations that are being spoken to the Lord with that kind of word of judgment. Just as though Babylon was, you know, again, that nation, that that chosen instrument. Well, they're not going to be off the hook either. Because they've gone beyond the word of the Lord and the things that they've done. Well, chapter 52 is a review of just that fall of Jerusalem and the destruction that came against them but yet it's been recorded some 25 years after it's happened chapter 52 is a review of the fall of Jerusalem written 25 years after the initial collapse much of the material is a parallel to information recorded by Jeremiah in chapter 39 so why then was this chapter added to Jeremiah's prophecies most likely simply to show that Jeremiah's words or judgment against Jerusalem, had been fulfilled, and that his words about Judah's release from the exile in Babylon were about to be fulfilled. So that final chapter served to vindicate the prophet and also to encourage the remnant sitting in captivity there in Babylon. Well, a lot of great things that we see in the book of Jeremiah. There's a lot of neat pictures and and types of Christ that we see even with with Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, and remember Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, weeping over the city because of their unwillingness to come to the Lord, um, Jeremiah, uh, well, you know what, there's a few things we could say about those things, but, um, I want to move on, because I wanted to cover Lamentations tonight, and it's only five chapters, so it's not going to be a long one, but let's get into Lamentations here. We'll close up Jeremiah right now. Lamentations, again, a very unique book. It's a unique book because it's a book that's all about suffering. All about suffering. Now, the author, though never clearly identified, many believe it's Jeremiah. And, and as we read through some of these verses, you'll see very apparently that Jeremiah is the one that's writing this. And and Lamentations really becomes this appendix to Jeremiah. Because the last chapter, Jeremiah 52, serves as an introduction to what we're going to be seeing in Lamentations. As chapter 52 records a, a review again of the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, now Jeremiah picks up in Lamentations to reveal to some of the things that he's now experiencing as the city has been destroyed. And he's lamenting over the fall of Jerusalem. That's the name Lamentations. Now... Like I said, Jeremiah's been known as the weeping prophet. He had 40 years in ministry to his fellow Jews, warning them of the coming judgment that's coming because of their sin. And though Jeremiah was never taken seriously, and he endured rejection and and persecution, eventually, he saw the city then destroyed, the temple destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians, and the people of Israel taken away as captives to Babylon. Here now is Jeremiah distraught just over the reality of this judgment and the, the consequences of sin. His nation is paying the price because of their actions and their disobedience. So instead of rejoicing over the fact that his prophecies were fulfilled as he could have done, well, told you guys so. I warned you, but nobody listened. No, what do we see with the heart of Jeremiah? He's weeping, lamenting. He's, he's troubled. He's saddened over this. He's not rejoicing in the calamity of others, he's, he's mourning along with them for the fall of their city, and and the result of sin at work in the people. So because of this content and theme, Lamentations is probably one of the more neglected books in the Bible. Because nobody loves to sit there and go, well, let's see, let me have a good read on suffering. Let me just spend some time with somebody lamenting. Nobody wants to sit there and carve away some time for that, right? So Lamentations becomes a book that's sort of oftentimes neglected. So the question then is, what can we learn from a book like this? Well, first of all, we learn that God is a God of his word. See, it's his faithfulness to his word that is causing them to be in the position they are in. In fact, God spelled out these these things to Israel back in Deuteronomy 28, the listing uh, of the curses that would come upon the people as a result of the disobedience. God laid it all out that they would be even taken away as exiles into foreign lands. God laid it out so specifically for them. Again, if you do this, in obedience, you'll, you'll be blessed. If you do this, disobedience, man, there's going to be trouble. Charles Swindoll said of this book it is a mute reminder that sin, in spite of all its allurement and excitement, carries with it heavy weights of sorrow, grief, misery, barrenness, and pain. It's the other side of the eat, drink, and be merry coin, he says. Well, secondly, we learn that God is merciful. His desire is to restore us, even after we have sinned greatly. That's the amazing thing, is that God doesn't discount or give up on Israel. That his desire is to restore them. And he desires to restore us when we have sinned greatly. In fact, the chastening of the Lord is a sign that he cares for us and loves us. It tells us in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You see, the Lord loves you so much that he doesn't want to see you continue on your sin, which only brings trouble. So he comes along with chastening to bring you out of that, to awaken you out from that, to say, oh man, I better get back on track with the Lord because He's a God that desires to bless. And the only place that that blessing flows to is that place of obedience. So God does everything he can to get us back on. That's why he chastens us. So don't be discouraged when that happens. Recognize, Lord, what are you seeking to teach me in this? Number three, we learn that God is available and in times of calamity, he wants us to turn to him for comfort and help. Yeah, we live in a day where There's just so much turmoil and heartache taking place all around us. And the reaction of the world oftentimes is, where's God in all this? Where are you, God? Well, the answer is that God is available and he wants you to seek him and find consolation in him. 2 Corinthians 1, verse three and four says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes the Lord allows us to go through difficulty again so that we we grow and we mature through it. Sometimes, again, as you've heard me say, we don't need to be asking God, get me out of this. We need to ask God, what do you want me to get out of this? What should I be learning in this? And Sometimes it's to develop in us just that, that greater compassion and grace for others that might go through it so we can come alongside with that comfort to them, learning through our experiences that we might pass it on and help others as well. So Lamentations helps us see that where pain and suffering is, well, God's there also, ready to meet you and comfort you. Now, the writing of Lamentations would have happened just right after the the fall of of Jerusalem, so 586 BC, somewhere uh, around this time frame is when Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, and as we go through this book, we're gonna see very interestingly, and this is a neat thing about the Bible in a lot of places, is that each of the chapters has 22 verses, except chapter three, which has 66 verses, three times as much. And those chapters are written in a poetic form. The first four chapters are written as acrostic poetry, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So each of the 22 verses now starts with that beginning letter of the Hebrew alphabet and works its way down through each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet with each succeeding verse. Now that either helped in memorization or it kind of symbolized the completeness, the A to Z of grief that's being expressed here. So very interesting. Chapter three has 66 verses. So every third verse contained the next Hebrew letter. And chapter five does not use the acrostic form, though it has 22 verses. That's written more like that just, prayer uh, of lament just a, a hard expression being poured out seeking the Lord's mercy there so very very neat how the Bible is oftentimes written with you know just this neatly laid out way well here's the outline of lamentations chapter one is a lament on the bitter end of sin chapter two lament on the heavy hand of God chapter three lament on personal suffering Chapter four, lament on the great loss of God's favor. And then chapter five is that, again, lament and plea for God to consider. It's a a prayer being offered up. Look at chapter one. Let's read the first three verses here. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess among the the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. So Jerusalem and the Israelites are being likened to a, a widow. That'd be a real heavy reality because to be a widow in that day meant that you were... Cut off basically from any kind of support now, financially, physically. There was just nothing there for you. You, you were not going to be easily sustained. That's why God put a lot of emphasis in his word about coming alongside the, the widows and the orphans. Now, the real sad reality is that God called Israel to be his wife, right? They were to be experiencing his love, his faithfulness, and goodness, but that relationship became compromised As Israel began to play the harlot, as she went after idols and other gods. And now, they're experiencing the other side of that coin. Instead of blessing, they're experiencing the curse. Instead of companionship, they're experiencing calamity. Look at verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore, she has become vile all who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness yes she sighs and turns away her uncleanness is in her skirts she did not consider her destiny therefore her collapse was awesome she had no comforter O lord behold my affliction for the enemy is exalted now here's an important verse here the second part of verse nine she did not consider her destiny do you see that see whether it be in spiritual adultery like israel committed or even physical adultery, like so many in the world commit today, or any sin for that matter, we often fail to count the cost. We've all been told hey, count the cost when it comes to serving the certain Lord. Yes, we need to do that. But we need to understand and count the cost when we decide to mess with and play around with sin. Because we easily get caught up in the euphoria or the pleasure of sin without taking stock of the end result. It reminds me of the short-sighted skydiver that was making his first solo jump. Nothing had gone right all day for him. He overslept, he missed breakfast, his car ran out of gas, making him late to the airstrip. He got nauseated on the plane's ascent. And when he finally jumped and pulled his ripcord, his parachute didn't release. Of course, he pulled the emergency cord, but the chute didn't, didn't open still. And it's then that the man thought, man, nothing's gone right today. I'll bet they're late picking us up also. We fail oftentimes just to take stock of the end result. How we need to count the cost in these areas of of sin. It tells us in Proverbs 7, verse 22 to 23, immediately, speaking of this this place of falling into adultery or, or sin physically, immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know... It would cost his life. Do you know how many people have walked in a situation where they thought, oh, this will be okay. This will just be for a moment of pleasure. What's the harm that can come? And they fail to count the cost. Do you know how many lives have been destroyed by an indiscretion they've made because they failed to count the cost? They failed to comprehend or consider the destiny of that. Because some people thought, oh, this, this will just this be for a moment. No harm done. And eventually, when word gets out, families are completely devastated, torn apart. People are, are stripped of everything that they once had or had built up. Especially when you see pastors that fall into adultery. Where churches are devastated, where not only their own home it's broken apart, but now you've got a whole church that has been seeking, a, you know, listening to a person like that where many have just walked away completely from the faith, just the collateral damage that comes, failing to count the cost. And Israel was in that boat. They did not consider her destiny. Goes on to say in verse 11, my eyes fail with tears, my heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine as they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom? How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? So here we see again that utter grief and sorrow jeremiah this faithful witness who for years had warned the people and, and the city that these very things were coming if they didn't turn to god and now he's heartbroken and troubled his eyes are failing with tears that weeping prophet mourning grieving over the repercussions of the sins of the people And then kids and infants helplessly sitting in the streets with no provision or help. He's seen the devastation that's come. Chapter, moving on to chapter three here. Yeah, that was chapter two, verse 11, I think. I just read that. I think I said chapter one, but chapter two, verse 11, I just read. But let's jump to chapter three because chapter three is really the the heart of Jeremiah's short book here. In this chapter now, gives the book a positive framework around which the first two chapters revolve or the other chapters, all of them revolve around because the black velvet of sin and suffering, chapters one and two and four and five serve as a fitting backdrop now to display the sparkling brilliance of God's loyal love now in chapter three. Look at chapter three, verse 14. Chapter three, verse 14 says, I've become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I've forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Doesn't sound so positive just yet, right? Okay, we're getting there, don't worry. But Jeremiah here, he's, truly been mocked he's been scoffed at by the people all for simply speaking the word of the lord nobody believed him he's undergone this great persecution and trial he no longer even knows what it's like to know prosperity and blessing but notice this here now in verse 21 but this i recall to mind therefore i have hope through the lord's mercies we are not consumed because his companions Fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is where Jeremiah's attitude and perspective began to change. As he recalls now the work of the Lord, what happens? His hope now is renewed. See, when the outlook is looking bleak, try the uplook. Get your eyes on the Lord. As Jeremiah began to think rationally now, he began to see that not everyone was consumed. In fact, he's still alive. And there's a remnant still around. All of this is simply due to the compassion and the faithfulness of the Lord. In fact, as Jeremiah begins to dwell on that, he begins to realize that every day is a day to see the new mercies of the Lord and to see his faithfulness at work each and every day. Don't you see that? Isn't it great that Man, whatever you're going through, every day that you get to wake up and realize, oh, Lord, you're giving me breath. You're giving me life today. Today's a new day that I get to go out and experience your goodness and your grace. Help me to be a a witness of that. See, too often we're waking up saying, oh, Lord, it's morning. Instead of, you know, good morning, Lord. What do you have for me today? What's on the agenda? Help me just to to see and know your love in a greater way and to be an expression of that love and grace today. I love how the, the ESV translates verse 22. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. See, it's not that God has to endure us because he happens to be merciful as if he'd rather just kind of blot us out. No is that he loves us so much that new mercies are always available by which we are maintained or restored to his grace. Mercies is that Hebrew word hesed, which means loyal love. God has a loyal love, an unconditional love, a love that will never run dry or stop or cease. It keeps reaching out towards us. So regardless of what you're going through, And I don't ever want to minimize any kind of sorrow, suffering, or difficulty that people are experiencing, but we have to have a a healthy perspective that through Jesus, here's what we know, that we're saved, that he loves us, that he's preparing a place for us, and we're going to live with him forever. All that's through his mercy and his grace that's new every morning. So I don't need to fear or fret over the present because my future is locked in. And I have the hope of Jesus now at work in my life. And so every day I just go, well, man, there might be challenges, there might be difficulties, but it's temporary because of what Jesus has accomplished for me. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17, therefore, we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is, but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How good is that? It's just but for a moment. It's a, a light affliction. In comparison, Paul would say in Romans eight, eighteen, I believe it is that he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He basically says, whatever I might endure in this world, oh, the glory that's coming far outweighs all of that. And he says, basically, reading between the lines, it's all gonna be worth it. It will be worth it. So Jeremiah begins to have that shift of perspective and focus and outlook to realize, Lord, your mercies are new. Your compassions, they fail not. Great is your faithfulness, God. I can attest to that because I'm still here. Jeremiah is realizing. Well, chapter 3, verse 24. He goes on to say. Chapter 3, verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Here again is a real key in light of all this. Is the Lord your portion? That's going to be very much changing the way that your outlook is in what's going on, or your uplook, I should say. Is the Lord your portion? Are we looking to the Lord? to give us a portion in life? Or are we looking for the Lord to be our portion? Because if you're not fully satisfied in God alone, you'll find yourself becoming impatient and troubled when calamity comes. If you're not already looking to the Lord to say, God, be my portion, be my life, be, be everything to me, Lord. If he's not that for you right now, then you're gonna get troubled when difficulty comes. But here's what we can do, wait, wait for him or wait on him, as we talked about the other week. Seek him, hope and wait quietly, he says. It's good, verse 26, it's good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, just to see what God's gonna do. Trust him, see how the Lord's gonna lead you through. Well, let's go to the end of the book here now, just for one more glimmer of hope. Chapter 5 verse 19. We'll end it with this here. Chapter 5 verse 19. You, O Lord, remain forever. You're thrown from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. So the prayer of Jeremiah here, which is all of chapter five, but the prayer here kind of acknowledges God's sovereignty. No matter what we go through, we can never question that God is there. Some people sadly come to the point where they, they question God's existence, right? And they question God's existence because of their calamity, their, their, their condition. They go, if God is real, then why am I going through this? If God really loves me, then why? Why am I experiencing this? But here's what Jeremiah realizes. And you're on your throne. From generation to generation. You never stop doing that, Lord. You're sovereign. And you're in control of all things. He's not absent in your trial. But he's wanting to teach you and refine you in your trial. So don't give up on God. Turn to God. Look to him. Find God that hope in him because only in him do we find hope do we find that goodness and that faithfulness of the lord god is good so lamentation is a book of suffering yet in the midst of it we see that glimmer of hope that we all can have as we again remind ourselves who god is and all that he's done for us all right well let's pray and uh we'll wrap it up there Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for tonight here. We thank you for these things that we can look at, Lord, both in Jeremiah and and, and Lamentations, and to see, God, that though your people, and they've endured much, they've they've gone through great calamity, as, as we oftentimes can face, and yet, Lord, we see with them that you're a God that upholds your word. You carry out your promises. You've not turned aside from them but you've continually committed yourself to them and you do that with us and we're grateful and Lord I do pray for my brothers and my sisters here and and among this church that maybe are going through some real hard times it's been a time of grieving or or just experiencing that kind of chaos in their life and they're just wondering what's going on I pray that you would help them to see Lord that In the midst of it all, you're you're still faithful. Your mercies are still available each and every day. And help them, Lord. Help us all to look to you, to trust in you, to rely upon you, to be our strength in the midst of it. Because as we've seen in Jeremiah, nothing is too hard for you, God. You'll accomplish your work and your will. And so may we be able to sit and wait on you, continue to seek you and serve you, and see what you'll do through it all. I ask for your help, your strength, your grace. We need that. So we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.